Hello everyone, PJ here. I had a nice conversation about my life and my work with the lads at the Drunken Ramblings podcast. The conversation went on so long that we decided to cut it into two parts. So part one is on the Drunken Ramblings podcast, link in the show notes. And this is part two, which we're releasing here as a bonus extra for all of you loyal subscribers. Do check out their podcast either before or after you listen to this one. I hope you enjoy it. Hey guys, you're listening to another episode of the Drunken Ramblings podcast. This is part two of our PJ Tom episode. Hope you like it. So how did you get into creating the History of Singapore podcast actually? I mean, personally, I, I right. really love that podcast. That's oh, why I want cool. to talk about it. Because I found like the way you delivered, just telling about the different things, I, I just could listen it all the way in my car ride you know and oh cool yeah Thank something you. i really enjoy yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. glad, I'm glad you say that i'm glad you like it um i'm actually going to update it because there's a lot of things that uh, the first time you do something you know and the first time you write something yeah. there are things you want to change so i'm going to try and update it sometime this year or next year uh before working on a sort of sequel uh starting from the malaysia period onwards uh but yeah the history of singapore um i think well, first of all, you know, to take a big step back, um, I realized I was good at history. I ended up teaching history uh, in a, at an independent international secondary school in Singapore. Uh, I applied to do history, to go back to Oxford to do a, a doctorate in history. The funny thing was I actually wanted to do classics, Roman history. I really love Roman oh, history. Okay. Um the whole thing about power and citizenship, you know. And then I realized, hey, there's plenty of white people <laughs> in the West who can do Roman history. But no one has done a good history of Singapore, sort of post-Mary Turnbull, right? She was the first person to write history of Singapore in 1977. And no one has really done a really good history of Singapore after that. And there are holes in our history curriculum that you could drive a bus through, a double-decker bus. <laughs> you know, and even my students, right? I was, at, I was teaching ACS International and it was compulsory to do a couple of weeks of Singapore history. And I was trying to explain, you know, the 50s, and this was before my PhD, so I just had two bachelor's degrees and I didn't really know that much. This was 2005, 2000, yeah, 2005. And so there also wasn't the source base that we have today uh, of, you know, a lot of other works that have come out. And so my students were like, teacher, I don't understand. Look, <laughs> the, the communists, they wanted to work with the PAP. Then they don't want to work with the PAP. Then they want to cause a riot. Then they don't want to cause a riot. I mean, why can't the communists make up their mind? And I was like, you know, actually, like, how do we even know the communists wanted any of this like mm. what proof do we have you know Chin Peng had no idea what was going on in Singapore and the only real source we have is from Lee Kuan Yew and his you know because he claimed he had all these discussions with the plan but the plan's own memoirs it, you know doesn't discuss this in great detail only says he sought to collaborate with Lee Kuan Yew and I was like you know you're right we actually had no idea so I went back to Oxford and I did this for my doctorate. And the goal was to be able to help Singaporeans understand our past by filling in the, these big gaps in our history. Mm. So with that bigger picture in mind, um, when around the time, I, I forget the exact time now, uh, I can go look it up. Uh, you know, that's another misconception about history that we all like know all these dates off the <laughs> back. No, it's all, all about causality, right? Dates yeah. you can always look up. Yeah. You know, to understand why is the important 
question. Not when or how or who. Why? That's mm. the question we always ask in history. So anyway, uh, why I did it was because I wanted to communicate my work to a bigger audience. And most academic history, most academic work, full stop, is not really read by a public audience because it's not in an accessible format. And if people don't read our stuff, it's our fault for not writing or communicating it in an accessible way. You know, we can't expect people, we have to respect people's time, right? Mm. People don't have the time, especially this day and age, to sit down and read a dense book. Yeah. You've got to put it in formats that people can easily access. You know, it's like, I I don't want to sit down and read a hugely dense book all the time. Sometimes for my work, it's fun. But other times, I want to listen to a podcast. Mm. I want to watch a cartoon. I want to watch a, a documentary, you know, something mm. easier on the mind. I can't like turn my head on, you know, always be concentrating. And you you also want to respect people like when when they do it, right? You, you can, like you, res- listen in the car, in the MRT, right? I do a lot of my listening to podcasts on public transport. Mm. That was that was the goal. And then I love the History of Rome podcast. That was a fantastic podcast. That was the first series I ever listened all the way uh, from beginning to end. Uh, Mike Duncan, I think the name of the guy was. Um, and that was, you know, part of my love of Rome, Roman history. So I was like, well, might as well do a history of Singapore. So I, I just wrote it out. And then um, by coincidence, it was around the time Lee Kuan Yew died, I was invited by BF in KL to come on their program where I gave a very different view of Lee Kuan Yew and his history compared to what uh, most people understood, mm. right? And so they said, hey, let's collaborate. So I was like, oh, I have this podcast I'm working on. So they said, great, we'll broadcast it. And uh, so, you know, I just uh, let them have it for free. I didn't even ask for like payment or anything because mm. the goal is really to help people understand, understand Singapore and our past. Yeah, so that's how it got started. That's why it is. Plus, back then, podcasts, you don't really know where it was going to go. Like, yeah. It wasn't really a thing mm-hmm. back then. Like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true, yeah. So, initially, you just have this altruistic sense just to give proper information to Singaporeans. To, to give a different perspective, right? Mm. We can't be... You know, I, I, I've, um, I've always been careful to say this is a perspective, mm. and this includes, you know, certain uh, sort of slices of Singapore, right? And they know they're no more or less valid than other perspectives. But history is, as I keep saying, mm. history is an argument. It's not a narrative. It's not a story. It's not facts. Um, it's an argument about our past mm. and understanding and interpreting the facts. That's what makes history. And it's constantly interpreted and reinterpreted to help us understand the present. You know, especially in light of new evidence. So this was just my argument, my perspective. Uh, and since I've published it. I've learned new things and mm. things which uh, you know mean that some parts of the history of Singapore need to be updated or presented differently, you know, or certain perspectives that I didn't know about, and so I modify it, right? So I revise my own quote-unquote revisionist history, but that's history. All history, the whole point of it is, you know, it's like it's like science. It's like, uh, you know, when the government accuses me of being a quote-unquote revisionist historian, right? Mm. It's like saying to a scientist, hey, why aren't you just affirming the results of experiments that were done 20 years ago? Why are you doing new experiments? Mm. Why are you trying to push the boundaries of our knowledge to find new facts? Why Mm. don't you just repeat the experiments that were done 20 years ago? 
you know they just want to leave it as there right yeah that, that, that is that's it. not yeah. how knowledge works that's not how a civilization advances yeah. you know do you say to doctors hey why don't you just cure the diseases that are already cured why are you trying to learn how to cure new diseases you know I mean it makes no well, sense that's a very good analogy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a very interesting way to view history it's almost like an art the way you're describing mm. it to, mm. through my ears, you know, like, and I don't think many people think that way when they nope. think of history. Yeah, they, yeah. they always think it's <laughs> set yeah. in stone. Yeah, exactly. This is what, uh, yeah. I mean, that's it's, what yeah, we tend to feel. Are, that's, yeah. And the way you described it, mm. I imagine in, in your mind, history is art and that's how I hear artists describe mm. different forms of art. Mm, that's interesting about yeah. putting it. it. It is very much an art in the sense that the skill of the historian and the personal interpretation, the personal uh, perspective of historian all comes into play. Mm. So historians also, we have to be conscious of our own inherent biases mm. you know and I, I hope I have been conscious of mine you know uh, and the things the values that I believe in and the things that I, I the, you know your values really do matter to how you interpret the past mm. right um, but we have to recognize you know history is a it's a discipline and a skill the, the, the writing and interpretation of history is a discipline and a skill that has to be learned and trained um, very much like any skill uh, because it's about understanding and analyzing huge amounts of complex information from different perspectives you know when we walk out of this room in, in a week someone may ask each of you what happened today and each of you are going to tell a different story yeah. right so whose story is factual yeah you know right. yeah. you 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 all three are but you may disagree because memory is inexact and values are, are different right and maybe ernie you're going to be focused more on the fact that well you're the one looking at the the computer and recording and you're like oh there was a problem with the sound you know whereas gareth you may be like well you know he said something very interesting and 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 you know whatever uh, I was very focused on whatever. And then, uh, Joel, maybe you're like, um, you know, the way he kept waving his left hand, you know, <laughs> was very, I don't know, right? So whatever you value, whatever is different, you know, it's, yeah. and um, yeah, I, I've also tried to bring that on my podcast. How you interpret the past, uh, what, what you value really matters in how you interpret the past. And that really influences how you read things. And you need to be, you need to understand that. Mm. I yeah. think also it's important to have an open mind yeah. and not just, you know, say that just because you saw it in a book or textbook is set in stone. This is it. Because I think initially I, I have to admit that I am this kind of people, you know, as long as I see it in a text or a book or official book, I will deem it as that's the truth. Yeah. You know, I will not listen to anything else. We were, we were, I mean, it's cool as well because I took psych. It, memory is a very unreliable mm. source mm. of information in this, in that sense because it's uh, I think the case that they always bring up was the people who pose as ev a weakness as evidence mm -hmm. and weaknesses tend to shift here and there. this was an argument on racism where yeah, yeah they were pointing out mm. uh, yeah they were brought to the stand and he accused um, a different black male um, but yeah, I don't want to sidetrack to that like, yeah. <laughs> direction. Yeah, but yeah. Thing. yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> was new narrative already running or was it... Uh, no, that was later. Birth? So how did that come about? Well, again, taking a big step back, sure. right? Uh, at Oxford, we started Project Southeast Asia because I, again, wanted to create something which would make academic work more accessible. And so I wanted to create something which was very much focused on getting academics of Southeast Asia... Uh, um, producing information that was relevant to the people of Southeast Asia and trying to incentivize that through an academic framework. Um, 
the interesting thing, you might say the sad thing about Southeast Asia is that most academic research about Southeast Asia, like independent, rigorous, high quality academic work about mm. Southeast Asia happens outside of Southeast Asia because of our colonial past, mm. right? There's sort of three great strands of Southeast Asian studies. Uh, the first is the colonial strand, which is all about anthropology, sociology, and that's very colonial-based. So it's uh, very much based in the great universities of Europe, right? Oxford, Cambridge, Soas, the German, the French, so on and so forth, Leiden, you know. And then there's the sort of Cold War studies, and it's focused very much on Vietnam and on sort of international relations. And it's centered in the US for obvious reasons. And then there's the third one, which is sort of economic development. And that is what is very much promoted by Southeast Asian governments as part of their drive to justify the authoritarianism. And anything outside of that is actually very difficult. Um, and there is, apart from the Philippines, is no real independent liberal tradition of academia in Southeast Asia. And maybe pockets of, you know, it's like Thai universities have some tradition mm. of this, but because of the coups and, you know, governments, it's been difficult. And then... Um, uh, Indonesian universities have to tread carefully. They are they find their own way, but it rises and falls. The only sustained tradition is the Filipino one. Um, and really, I think that's nowhere else. Uh, so with Project Southeast Asia, what I wanted to do was try and incentivize the study of Southeast Asia, and especially Southeast Asian issues that are relevant to the people of Southeast Asia, right? Like sustainable development, mm. like understanding issues uh, you know, related to corruption, understanding climate change, um, things, you know, in ways which are relevant to us, mm -hmm. right? We, we talk about Southeast Asian development and it's inevitably when you look at development around Southeast Asia, there's some elite profiting from it and arguing that it's, oh, it's good for development. We're building these new buildings. We're creating GDP, you know, and what is always forgotten with the building of these massive developments is, hey, what happened to the village that used to stand, you know, sit at that site where you've now built a thousand flats, right? right? The village have been moved 50 miles away cut off from their livelihood mm. they have to commute 50 miles every day back to the market where they work or whatever right they can't buy flats in this new development and meanwhile these flats they have a wonderful seafront view and then the developer has you know uh, is an elite or has a friend who's an elite who has a cut of it and the government has a cut and then it contributes a huge amount to GDP and everyone says it's a success except for the villagers who actually live there originally mm -hmm. you know and this is um, was a big problem in in Jakarta or Phnom Penh you know and of course in Singapore right yeah. so many people dispossessed of their of their land whether it's the indigenous people or the people who came after and um, all this possessed by the state so that was Project Southeast Asia but uh, long story short academia is inherently conservative and academia is extremely unfortunately very neoliberal you know they, they, they talk about this whole ivory tower and this was mm. something I never experienced even in Oxford and Oxford is like better than most universities at insulating academics from the pressures of money but basically in academia what really counts are just two things one is sort of how much you publish and it's very political right and the other is how much money you bring in. And that mm. is very much incentivized by like grants. Governments give grants so they can affect things. Corporations give grants. They can affect things. Big foundations give grants, right? It's never about what is good for the people. You know, what are the genuine problems that need to be solved? You know, these, that's not the question that gets asked. Mm. It's about what 
brings in the big bucks. And things like, oh, studying China, studying radical Islam, studying the Asia-Pacific, security studies, these bring in the big bucks, mm. right? Solving the problems that the fishermen of Southeast Asia face. No, that doesn't bring in the big bucks. Yeah. So a lot of institutional resistance there. So eventually I tired of it all and I just decided I'll start my own company and focused very much on getting this information in the hands of ordinary Southeast Asians like mm. you and me uh, and which was very much also making focused on making information accessible. Mm. So that's the original idea behind New Narrative and that's why I partnered with Kirsten who's very good at communicating information to the public and Sunny who is very good at also communicating information in a very different way. And that was that was the beginning of it. How yeah. do you find all these quality sources of information to fill in all these supposed gaps that we have in our history? I guess there are a lot of things that we don't know, we only see on the surface, but mm-hmm. that means you have to dig dive into all the different sources of inf- information, right? To find out what is the real truth or what is yeah. the real history. So that's part of the training and skill of a historian, right? Mm. Understanding um, sources and how to work with sources. Yeah. And this uh, actually might be the most important thing that we learn because uh, sources are not made equal. And um, there are a lot of different ways, uh, different you know potential sources. So the main source that I work with are government documents, mm. uh, especially because I work a lot on sort of very high politics um, and so those are preserved in archives, particularly the UK National Archives, which mm. might be the gold standard for um, you know the preservation of official documents. And and what I love about them is that they actually want you to use their documents and write his good history. So they go out of their way to help you. Oh, okay. Whereas say the Singapore Archives are very. <laughs> very suspicious and they're all about preservation not use mm. so they're very reluctant for you to so they restrict a lot of things yeah it's very when you try to access the information they yeah. say no you cannot do this even if they are well intentioned mm. they are very restrictive because of I think the not just the overall brief the incentive structures also we don't have a law you know Freedom of Information Act in Singapore mm. right so it's very patchy in the UK there's a Freedom of Information Act that is very comprehensive and again probably the gold standard uh, so that's that's one main source. Mm. Then a, another common source is newspapers. But of course, uh, those come in a variety of, you know, I mean, we're, we're very well familiar with newspapers being very biased. Yeah. Right. Um, and then there's memoirs. And of course, there's interviews. And then there's all sorts of other, depending on the kind of historian you are, Right, surveys, um, studies, statistics, all these things can be sources. So once you assemble those, you then need to look at and really ask what are the biases and mm. deconstruct these sources. Um, so official sources obviously have a bias towards um, the government of the day and the values and priorities of the government of the day, right? Whatever those are. And for a colonial government, you know, it's very much about control, profit, bigger strategic interests. Mm. They're not concerned about things like, you know, self-determination or human rights or dignity or fair wage or any of that, right? So what, I mean, there's a famous sort of um, whole school called subaltern studies, which started in India. Surprise, surprise, obviously, India, you know, the crown jewel of British Empire uh, in the 80s, where fundamentally, uh, you know, if you think of subaltern, of course, you know, is a term for the... British Army, a certain rank of the British Army that was was very low. Uh, so the idea is to look at these official documents, but from the perspective of the people who are the subject of the document. Mm. So say you have a document talking about, oh, there was a riot 
in this place. These people have no respect for the law. They have a tendency towards violence. We had to spend all this money putting down the riot. And, you know, it really shows how these people have no respect and they... Uh, they, they need to be policed very carefully. But then if you go and you read between the lines and then you try and understand the context, right? And you realize, oh, well, first of all, there was a food shortage. Second of all, the employers in the area were firing people because they weren't making enough money. And then when the people protested, the, you know, the, the owners of the business who were chiefly British appealed to the, their friends in the military, uh, the local police force to send in uh, troops or soldiers or police officers and then there was shoving and pushing and a riot broke out. And then you realise, wait a moment, no, this is about a lack of food, you know, a lack of respect, a lack of jobs, a lack of fair pay, right? But if you read the official document, it's just, mm. oh, law and order, mm. right? And that's a very classic division between uh, how official documents will look at it yeah. and how um, people on the ground look at it. It, you know, as I always say, no one gets up in the morning and it's like, oh, I want to riot today, yeah. <laughs> right? Riots happen because people get angry and frustrated and upset. No one just goes out and decides, I'm going to risk my life for yeah. whatever. Yeah. No, people just want to like have calm, quiet lives and feed their families, right? And be treated like human beings. So you got to understand these perspectives. And of course, the other tendency of bureaucracies is always to put people in boxes. Bureaucracies love boxes because that's how bureaucracies work most effectively. And, and, and the classic example here is CMIO, right? There is such diversity within the Singaporean community. You know, one in three marriages today are between a Singaporean and a non-citizen. One in five births, I think. Are, uh, are from these marriages. Uh, we have historically a very diverse population. But to make it easy for the government, for the British colonial government, they put everyone into four boxes, C, M, I, and O. And Malaysia and Singapore have inherited that. And that's taken on a life of its own where if you and I were born 150 years ago, we wouldn't call ourselves Chinese, right? Or someone who was Malay today wouldn't call themselves Malay. But today, you assume that exists. So it affects how you think, how you see the world. You have to adopt the language of the government just to get by. Mm. You know, and uh, an example from my most recent podcast was uh, someone who kept saying SES, right? <laughs> Socioeconomic status. Yeah. It's class, right? Mm, yeah. But you adopt the language in order to have to deal with the government. Mm. And, you know, that's such a small example, but then you think about bigger examples like what is Chinese, what is Indian, what is Malay, right? And then you absorb that in and you have to absorb that in order to deal with the government and over time it shifts your assumptions and view of the world. So today, like it or not, we have to deal with a world where people just automatically put things into certain boxes, whether it's CMIO or other things, and that then affects how you talk about the world. So that then translates when you come back to sources, you have to go back to that frame of mind and say, well, how do people see the world? How do they classify? What are their values? What are their assumptions, right? Uh, another example is the word socialist. Um, in the 50s and 60s, to be socialist was to be a good, great thing. Everyone, all the progressive parties were socialists. And then with the rise of the Cold War, suddenly socialists became a very evil thing associated almost with communism, right? And then today, because we see the excesses of capitalism, people are again proudly saying, hey, I'm socialist. Mm. You know, so the same word has gone from one end of spectrum to another end to, yeah, yeah. you know, and there's... It, it kind of goes back yeah. to what you were saying about history, right? It, yeah. It's 
basically whoever remembered it and is telling it at that time and then there it is yeah <laughs> yeah and very often it's the people without power you know it's the old expression right the victors write the history the winners write history mm-hmm. but of course it's not a complete history it's just their perspective yeah, yeah. so we need to tell it from the side of the people who didn't win and it, is, it doesn't mean they their perspective was any less valid because they didn't win and very often as we've seen in colonial countries the perspective of the people who didn't win are even more valuable right indigenous mm. perspectives diverse perspectives um, these are all really important things that we need to recover in so many movies about war they always say you only show the, the western one, perspective yeah, the western, yeah. most of the war yeah, yeah most you of the war the western side yeah. I'd like to digress a little bit like sure. you have this wealth of information like do you have like a photographic memory how do you memorize all this information like store in your, your, your mind oh no quite, quite the opposite I don't have a photographic memory I just <laughs> I think it's just from the use of it because I um, you talk about it often I talk about it a lot yeah. you know I actually have a lot of people asking me for interviews and it's a big struggle to deal with I get emails all the time asking me questions and I'm just so swamped to emails mm. uh, you know I've got um, I mean you guys are familiar with the police raid on my home last mm-hmm. September yeah. I've got emails from last September that came in around the time of the raid that I don't I, I still haven't responded to because I just I just don't have the time mm-hmm. you know especially emails which ask me very detailed questions and I want to help but sometimes I just don't have the time and other times I'm like dude I already wrote a paper I just go read the thing yeah, you know yeah, yeah, true. Um, <laughs> But to answer your question, yeah, I end up having to use this a lot. And whether it's whether it's uh, my work, whether it's interview like this, um, like this Saturday, I'm giving a lecture, you know, uh, online. So yeah, it's just it's just a lot, and mm. I'm always trying to. Also, I teach, right? And when you teach, you end up having to. You learn more yourself as well. Yeah. Right? yeah, but constantly use the same knowledge uh, to explain to your students. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly using this. It's not about... I, I have a terrible memory, actually. <laughs> I don't uh, think so, though. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> From the way I'm you... I'm always amazed yeah. at like historians or people who can remember such yeah. crazy amount of information. But I don't think... <laughs> this is my work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. No, I, I think don't think they memorize everything. They just... It's, uh, it, it comes with practice. And yeah. when you yeah. practice enough, you, it will come... It's the second. brain muscle. Yeah, it's the brain muscle. It's it's also an important thing to point out that it's not just storage of information. I mean, anyone can store information. It's how you convey that information to others in a very concise way, mm. which I think you did a very good job in it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's very easy. It's very, you know, to history for me, it's just a, lot of, a, a bunch of words I don't understand. But, you know, if you say it in a very easy, concise manner, which is mm. relatable, digestible, I think a lot of people are more keen to learn about history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that's that's the thing. Uh, also, about academia, we're not incentivized to teach well or write well. We're incentivized to publish and get a lot of new information out mm. there. So yeah. academics aren't actually incentivized to be good communicators and teachers uh, in general. I mean, it depends on the university as well. Mm. Uh, but that is unfortunate. But they are very also very different skills. Being a good researcher doesn't mean you're a good teacher or explainer, yeah. unfortunately. So, you know, with new narrative, I'm trying to close some of those gaps. Mm. Um, by having people who are good at a summarizing or editing or turning these this information into more accessible formats mm. do that so that we can access it yeah I think like your message and when you're speaking it's very eloquent and you know it's something you can really feel your passion when you talk actually like even mm. here when you're speaking I, I get lost because you use certain words that are just so you don't really hear people speak that way yeah. and when you hear <laughs> someone speak that way you, you're quite amazed you know you just listen and yeah. listen 
listen and listen and listen. Like basically, you have this oh, thing wow. about you. <laughs> well, thank you. You're very kind. I, I, I'm very flattered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm very curious about where, I mean, we don't have to talk about new narrative because people can just watch the things there already. Yeah. But where do you see it going? You know, what's the larger plan for, mm. you know? It's funny, you know, I, I also end my podcast, um, all the interviews, we always ask about the theory of change at the end. And I suppose that's just my Atta's <laughs> way of asking the same question. Um, but for me, um, it, it comes from several beliefs, right? One is that, I guess as a historian also, you have to understand, or at least not you have to understand, that sounds a bit presumptuous, but I feel, I believe that change um, happens and is most lasting when you bring the majority of the population with you and you slowly shift the values and assumptions and belief of the public at large. Um, and consequently, and unfortunately, it's very gradual. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I know there's, there's a sort of passion because of the stories that we are surrounded by to think of change as revolutionary. But I think instinctively, I see, because also I see as, as a historian and the kind of work that I do, I see incentive structures, I see institutions. I'm, very, I'm a big believer in institutions. These things need to be changed and they only can be changed slowly and gradually. Mm. And so with new narrative, what I'm trying to do is empower and educate a wider public through a variety of means in order to create that change, right? So rather than be someone who campaigns for immediate drastic change, and that's not to uh, you know, cast aspersions on, on, on anyone mm -hmm. who does that, right? Um, they all have their time and place and there are different strategies and who's to say what I'm doing is the right way. Right. No one ever knows. Mm. It'll be for a future historian exactly. to pass <laughs> their judgment on me. Um, but I think when I also, when I look at Singapore and at Southeast Asia, you know, there's so many people who are very good at organizing and campaigning and they are doing great work. But what we kind of need is more um, empowerment and education. And that's where I'm trying to uh, provide value, I mm. suppose. Um, so with, with New Narrative, really, it's about making information accessible and uh, empowering people to then use that information to create change um, in their local communities, in their national communities, and also about trying to model the values that we want to see in a better Southeast Asia, progressive values which respect the you know humans, human beings, the ind individual rights. So with you know all those three things, hopefully we can build an organization which is sustainable in the long term and can um, carry these things out, can you know inform, empower, and advocate, mm. um, and slowly create an institution that can create change. Nice. Awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. I yeah. think you embarking on this journey um, would definitely bring about a lot of sacrifice. I'm sure you have mm -hmm. sacrificed a lot in your life, you know, fighting for something you believe in. So, which, would you say that, you know, your future self, let's say 10, 15 years from now, would you say that it was all worth it? I am very lucky because I've had so much given to me, right? Mm. I've never been in a position where I had to worry about my next meal, mm. You know, and I've, as crazy as my dad was, I have no doubt he loved me and yeah, he did his best for me. And I have my family's 100% support in what I do. That's great. Yeah. 
And I mean, going back to some of the earlier questions you asked, right? I, I, I've, from a very young age, I was um, inculcated with this idea that the purpose of life is to make the world a better place. Uh, and I was very fortunate. Um, the privilege that you have, you know, my mother always said to me, like, you, you have to remember, you know, you, you're, you're at the top 1% of the world, right? Our lifestyle here in Singapore, the things you have. So you have a responsibility to society. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel I've talked a lot with my dad, but actually my mom is also very formative in my life right because um, she was she's a Methodist and so she raised me as a Methodist and of course sent me to ACS mm-hmm. she went to ACS for pre-U and then went to ACS where there's a huge uh, as a mission school you're lectured about being you know uh, your, your responsibility to society yeah. right so between all these things right being uh, an athlete and having this very visceral reaction to the flag to the country um, and getting to represent my country from a young age being a Methodist going to a Methodist school, getting all these scholarships. I've been very lucky, right? Having parents who uh, lectured me a lot about my responsibility to society. And actually, you know, I've talked about this this before, um, but, you know, I, I, I should tell this story again, I guess. Um, my, my dad... He, you know, I've talked a lot about his hang up. And one of the things is that he always said to me, you know, PJ, you got to make the most of your life, right? Live it to the fullest because one day you're going to wake up and you're 60 years old and you're going to wonder where all the time went. And then, and then he died when he was 59. <laughs> oh dear. And it's like the, his last craziest lesson to me, you know, really screwed me up for a long time. Still mm. screws me up, right? But I am... I really have this sort of... Uh, and something I struggle with is like how making the most of my life. And I don't think it's healthy, you know, the way I'm sort of obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. But this is why... This is one part of the reason, all these things, why I push myself so hard. And um, so I don't know, you know, in 10 years' time, what I'm going to say. And I'm, it's very scary. I don't know if what I'm doing is the right thing if it's going to work if I'm going to actually accomplish the things I want to do but I I know I'm making a difference now mm. and I know that I'm lucky enough that I am doing something I'm good at and I'm so privileged to be able to do that and you know again I've, I've this other story I've told before but um, way back in 20, what year was it? 2014, 2013. It was one of the launches of the Cold Store book. And a former detainee, you know, after I, I, I talked about how there was no evidence, right, that any of the detainees of Cold Store were involved in a communist conspiracy. And this detainee comes up to me and he says, you know, for years when he was on the inside, he was told that he had inadvertently been part of that conspiracy and they would, his jailers would say things to him as he was detained without trial, right? Mm. Oh, we know you're not actually a communist, but you are helping the communists. Mm. And he felt very ashamed about this. And when he was on the inside, his wife, his children had suffered. And now here I come along 50 years later to, to prove that there was never any evidence they had been lying to him, that he was actually on the right side of history. And, you know, he said two things to me. I'll never forget. One is that, um, first, he said, I can look my wife and children in the eyes again. Wow. And the other thing he said was, PJ, you've given me my dignity back. And to know that, 
I can do this for someone. Mm, what you've done has such a positive impact yeah. on someone else. It's I'm so lucky. You know, I'm so lucky. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, really, yeah. I mean, uh, you can really see the emotion and and I mean, from my I'm, I follow your podcast and all, and I I can see that you're doing something. You know, it's definitely not for nothing, for sure. For sure. Yeah. 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 Thank you. And I hope you don't mind me asking. I have just one more question. Um, and I noticed that you mentioned that your father was very hard on you back then when you were a kid. But even after everything that you guys have been through, you still obviously love your father a lot. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. And yeah, um, maybe you, if you have something to say, you know, if you have one thing to say to your dad, what would it be? Oh, man. <laughs> and I do have friends who come from very tough backgrounds. And, but the moment where one of the parents, you know, who were abusive to them in the past, passed away, they had a lot of regrets. You know, they, they said they wouldn't... Um, they didn't talk enough to their parents. They didn't sh- spend mm. enough time with them. See, the problem with my dad is I didn't. Re- I never got to talk to him. He always talked at me my whole life. Mm. I never actually had a proper conversation with him. And I suppose it's not so much a question of what I'd like to say to him. Mm. For once, I'd like to understand him. I'd really like to have a conversation with him as an equal. And I don't know whether that's even possible because... You know, if if he came back or there was some sort of, I don't know how it would work, but he'd always be my dad, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, to this day, I'm 41. My mom still treats me like a little kid. <laughs> um, how do you even have that conversation? But I just want to understand, and I'd really like to be able to forgive him. Mm. And that's a big struggle, you know? And, uh, yeah, I think I just... The more I learn about him, the more I feel like if he was a peer, I would never have been a friend or anything, uh, you know, or any sort of acquaintance with him. I'd be so, I'd have been so frustrated with with him. But because he was my dad, I had to listen to him. So mm. I think that's what it, it, it is. Is more. I'd, I'd just like to understand him and his story and be able to finally really forgive him. Mm. Well, I think, thank you very much, you know, for sharing this 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 side of you. It's something that It's definitely I've not easy It's not easy Yeah, I mean something I can I mean based on what you're telling me Something I can definitely See that your father Has impacted you Was like He gave you this drive You know Yeah. And I think that's something That's quite amazing Like you, you can really see it The passion, the drive And that quest to keep going higher mm. Not necessarily yeah. higher But better Be better So what my mom always says though I'm so my father's son Because <laughs> how he died right His doctor said Your heart is bad Stop playing squash Get in shape So my dad Got in really good shape For his age Lost a lot of weight And then Promptly Went back to playing squash <laughs> Because in his mind What the doctor said was You can't play squash Unless you get into good shape mm. Right, so he got in this great shape. Went back to play squash. His heart gives out on the squash court. He drops dead. Oh no! So, oh, no. so that my mom says, right? You are so your father's son. You will kill yourself doing the things that you love, and that's what I'm worried about the most. Most of all, you know. And I, I, I really try and keep that in mind. Like yeah. I have to remember, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And as a historian, I know that the things we do today will ripple throughout history, but we probably won't live to see the results. So you just got to be as good a person as you can be. Mm-hmm. That's all you can really hope for. Just keep doing better. Yeah, just, yeah, keep 
Yeah. Well, um, we did one hour forty minutes already. Wow. <laughs> okay, time flies. And yeah, I think I think it's a good time Ooh. to end off. Yeah. Yeah. I really hope you don't work to kill yourself because yeah, I'm trying. I'm I trying. love listening I, to you. Yeah. <laughs> Please continue to keep yeah. doing what you're doing. Thank really you. thankful that you came on to share and yeah, some mm. very personal stories and that's something. I think it will stick to us it forever. To for us. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Really appreciate Thank you. that. Thank you for having me on. I, uh, you know, I appreciate this opportunity to talk. I mean, when else are you going to get nearly two hours to just talk about yourself, <laughs> right? So, so indulgent in some ways. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So if I can just add at the end sure. um, for your audience uh, and mine, of course, um, if you would like to support me in my work, please do join New Narrative as a member at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. We really need your support because New Narrative is entirely dependent on membership revenue and donations. And, uh, you know, we're a long way away from breaking even. So we really do need your support. So come on, guys, please support uh, New Narrative. It's only 52 uh, 52 US dollars so about 70 sing a year uh, or 5 US dollars which is about 7 that's sing a, uh, a month guys, come on support, <laughs> support PJ and co- continue what he's doing uh, and if you like what you're listening to Drunken Ramblings also don't forget to listen uh, to subscribe to our Spotify our Facebook our Apple Podcast and our Instagram as well and uh, we hope to catch you again soon Woo. see you guys next week thank you thank you Drunken thank you. Ramblings